This is Hebrews 2020. This is We See Jesus. This is increment 41 and the 30th increment of the Corona series. And it's Wednesday, June 24th, when this will be finally aired, so to speak, although some may see it beforehand. And I will be out of pocket for a little bit, out of the pulpit for a a short time. And I'm delighted to say that pastors Craig Brown and Brian Messick will be producing and recording messages. Jim will be doing the honors right here from the Alamo. And they will be also up on the website for your edification and for your encouragement. These are men that have been tested. These are men that have gained the approval of many and of the Lord himself. And I'm looking forward to their messages myself to listening to them myself. Father, we ask that you'll bless this time together, this increment of study, this here a little, there a little line upon line study of Hebrews. Bless this increment. And use it to turn the attention of us all to the son, your son. And to keep our occupation with him for those whose minds are stayed on him are kept in perfect peace. According to Isaiah 26 and verse three. So we entrust our spirits to you, father. We commit our souls to you as a faithful creator. And we give you our heart that we may be taught of you through the Holy Spirit. For they shall be taught of God, says the scripture. So, Father, we thank you that you have taught us and that we are theodidactoi, God-taught ones, especially with regard to loving one another and to being in love. So with this Thanksgiving, we enter into today's Increment. Amen. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Who said that? Neil Armstrong. Astronaut Neil Armstrong. July 20th, 1969 at 1056 p.m. Eastern time. As he stepped onto the moon. Like the psalmist in Psalm 8, he was using the word man and mankind. A man meaning him, he stepped on the moon. But he also believed that and indeed was correct that this was a giant leap for all of mankind. That he was representing all of mankind by stepping on the moon. Now let's go to Hebrews 2.5. Another quotation from David. King David, the Holy Spirit spoke through him. And the one who quotes him is an unnamed, anonymous author of an epistle, which is kind of a sermon in a letter by someone who's obviously a pastor and a theologian, so we call him the PT, the pastor theologian. Hebrews 2, 5 through 8a. For you see, it is not, to angels that God subjected the future world about which we are speaking. Now somewhere, someone solemnly testifies saying, quote, 
What is man or mankind that you remember him? Or a, or we could even say the son of man, that you are concerned for him. You made him inferior to angels for a short while. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You subjected all things under his feet. Now today's, this message may be a little hurried and a little crammed. I usually do three or four edits. In other words, I prepare the message three or four times, this time only once, or maybe one and a half times. And Jim's done double duty today to record two messages in a row. And so this comes right after 40, two minutes later. After this quotation, what I wanted to do today, and I may go off the beaten path a little bit, even though our path is already off the beaten path. I just wanted to give kind of an encouraging exhortation to our listeners and specifically to to Telestai Phalanx. Some of you actually think I might be your pastor or have been your pastor. After this quotation from Psalm 8, 4 through 6, LXX Psalm 8, 5 through 7, the PT makes a concluding comment as he did in Hebrews 1.14, following the Florilegium, or the quotation of Psalm 110.1, LXX 109.1. Both of these quotations, Psalm 110.1 and Psalm 8.4-6 or 8.5-7, both these refer to the feet of the Son. Psalm 110.1 in your English Bible records God the Father's words to his son, which is the Lord speaking to David's Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. The writer in the same spirit, capital S-P-I-R-I-T, the Holy Spirit, adds his own comment in the form of a rhetorical question that requires an affirmative answer. Uh, therefore, following his quote of Psalm 110.1 in Hebrews 1.13, he in 1.14 says, aren't all the angels ministering spirits sent for service and support to those who are destined to inherit salvation? That question requires an affirmative answer. Yes, that's what they are. Hebrews 1.14. Similarly, after his quotation of LXX Psalm 8, 5 through 7 in your Bible, it's probably Psalm 8, 4 through 6. The writer concludes this paragraph with his own Holy Spirit-inspired comment in Hebrews 2, 8b through 2, 9. Hebrews 2, 6b to 2, 8a is the Holy Spirit-inspired psalm quotation. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned for him? You made him inferior to angels for a short while. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You subjected all things under his feet. In 2, 8b, the second part of 2, 8, 
all the way through verse 9, in the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, the PT speaks interpretively of Psalm 8, 5 through 7 from the Septuagint. And he says this, quote, 8b, he says, by, quote, subjecting everything under his feet, close quote, God left nothing out. Sounds like God loses nothing. Sounds like Jesus said, pick up all those crumbs so that we don't lose anything. God left nothing out that is not subjected to him. When he subjected everything, he didn't leave anything out. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 27, he, and following even all the way through 28, Paul makes it clear that there is someone who's excluded to everything being under his feet, and that's the one who subjected everything under his feet, obviously. Then he goes on to say, now in this world, meaning now, now, we do not see. Horao is the word for to see. And we're down the road sometime. We'll probably get into the meaning of just what does it mean to see? Not just lexicographical or the, not just the lexicon definition of to see, but something about the, shall I say, scientific definition of what it really means to see. He says, now in this world, we do not see the perfect active indicative of the verb horao means we are not seeing. At the present time in this world in which we die, we are not seeing everything subjected to him. Watch the news today for five minutes or tonight or whenever you're watching this. Watch the news for five minutes, and you will not see everything subjected to him. You will not see everything in peace and joy and righteousness ruling in this world. But now, and here's the climax of this paragraph, and again, you could go off on this thing, this verse, a million times and still not exhaust it. But now, we do see the one who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, the one. Now, he's talking about the specific meaning of the man or the son of man. We see the one, capital O-N-E, I would say, who was made inferior to the angels a little while. And for the first time, may I introduce to you by name... The first time in Hebrews, Jesus, who through the suffering of a death in which he experienced death, the wages of sin for everyone, that's all people for all time, folks, has been crowned with glory and honor. This, this, it's notoriously difficult to translate this, Hebrews 2.9, and we'll look at it. Maybe some down, down the road, but I just put it this way, and I'll say it again, verse 9. But now we do see the one who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, Jesus, namely Jesus. And that's the name, I think, that is higher than all the angels in Hebrews 1.4 and Ephesians 1.20 to 21. 
we do see Jesus who, comma, through the suffering of death in which he experienced death for everyone, that death being the wages of sin, that's all people for all time, has been crowned with glory and honor. Having passed through that death, having endured that cross, and been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, we see him now with the eyes of our heart in Ephesians 1.18, crowned with glory and honor, one who was once crowned with a crown of thorns as he hung on Mount Calvary's hill on a cross, and whose feet were nailed to the vertical beam of that cross, and his hands nailed to the Horizontal beam. We see him now with a crown of glory. And we see his feet. Ready to rest. On all his enemies. Enemies that will have been. By then transformed. To be friends. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them. In this world in which we live in, metaphorically, temporary tents, which have no foundation, we do not see everything subjected to the Son of Man, to Jesus. But we do see Jesus, again, with the eyes of our heart. And to see him means to understand. That's part of the meaning of see. For the Son of God has come and he has given us an understanding, said the elder John at the close of his first epistle, in 520, near the close. This understanding is the understanding of the true God. And this true God, according to Jeremiah 9.24, LXX 9.23, does mercy and judgment. Judgment, that means as an act of grace. He does mercy and judgment. That means he does mercy and judgment as an act of grace. And saving righteousness on the earth, that is through the whole earth. In seeing Jesus crowned with glory and honor, we see our own destiny. For we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. This all again comes from 1 John 5.20, which closes with, this is the true God and this is eternal life. And the only thing he has left to say after that is, my little children, keep yourself from idols. Our world today is filled with idols and people are bowing to them. People are kowtowing to them because of guilt, because of an unpurged conscience purged by the blood of Christ, because of fear, because of a lot of other sinful motivations. In this world, In which we die. We do not see everything. Under his feet. 
but we do see Jesus. Even now with the eyes of our heart, then face-to-face in reality. He's crowned with glory and honor if you want to envisage him and imagine him in your mind's eye. He's crowned with glory and honor. <clears throat> Hebrews 2.9. He's at God's right hand. He's waiting for all his enemies to be placed under his feet. Hebrews 10.13. He's waiting. And those enemies will be under his feet. And that's just a simple way of saying they will be, they will have been reconciled to him. Best way to destroy an enemy is not to annihilate or kill him. It's to reconcile him, make him a friend. That's what God did. The last enemy, however, in fact, will not be placed under his feet. That enemy will be utterly annihilated, made not to be at all. That enemy's name is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And his partner is hell, utterly annihilated. Death will be annihilated for everyone. Why? Because Jesus, by the grace of God, experienced death for everyone. Sin has been removed because he who knew no sin... became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in solidarity with him. Second Corinthians five 21. We wait patiently as we see Jesus waiting. I can do nothing unless I see him do it first I see him patiently waiting, so I'll patiently wait. We see him patiently waiting. In future world, where he is already, everything has been placed under his feet. Everything, everything. Everybody, everything, every being. Everything that's ever been in a thing, in a thing. In this world, and at this time, his enemies still run free and work their havoc. In this world, Forces that are unseen, who don't think any lives matter, forces who don't think any lives matter, the thief comes only to kill, to rob, and destroy, to steal, to rob, destroy. He's a murderer from the beginning, 
in this world at this time. Forces who don't think any lives matter, black or white, yellow, brown or red, unborn or born, forces that don't think any lives matter, no matter what slogans they say. These forces are stirring up division. This has been happening for some time in our country, but even worldwide. They're stirring up division between races, between genders, between political parties, between ideologies, between generations. I've been through a few generations now and I've seen it happen every single time. The younger generation thinks they know more and better than the generation that brought them up. And they're so proud and so arrogant that they think they've actually at the cutting edge of things. And because they may live in an urban environment, they think that they're more intellectually enlightened when in fact, at the heart of many cities today that are, that are not going to continue into the next age, in the heart of many cities is the greatest arrogant ignorance that's anywhere in the whole world. And that's not just being facetious or critical of city dwellers as opposed to country dwellers. There's a lot of us bumpkins in the country. But these divisions are being stirred up in an attempt to replicate the days of Noah in which the thoughts, the schemes, the imaginations, the, if you want to use the word ideologies, of the inhabitants of the earth were only evil all the time. Genesis 6.5. In this world and at this time, there are plagues. The one we just had is not that big of a deal compared to what could be and what has been in the Spanish flu or the Black Plague in the history past. In this day, at our time, there is biological warfare. And guess what? Some plagues might actually be related to biological warfare that would actually be sent by one nation to another. That is possible. That's a possibility that may happen down the road. Maybe it's happened in the past. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. In this world, at this time, there's the threat of war. Not just Cold War. There's a threat. 
of war. Capital W-A-R, war. There are belligerent dictators bent on world domination. No matter how many UN inspectors you send into them, they're not going to change. There is virtually universal insecurity today and fear, anxiety, and worry about what is to come. Even to the point where people are losing all hope. In this world and at this time, the foundations of what we might call divine establishment or established foundations that may even find their roots ultimately in the Judeo-Christian ethic, as it's called. Foundations of divine establishment are crumbling. And the question looms, therefore, what shall the righteous do when this kind of thing is happening? What shall the righteous do? What shall people do who are being saved by God, by an act of God, and who have faith in Jesus Christ. Well, consider some excerpts from Psalm 11, which is LXX Psalm 10, another of the Psalms of David in the Septuagint that begins with the phrase, Eistotelos, for the end, or regarding completion. Now, I've looked at the Greek translations, I've looked at some good English translations, and I've looked at the LXX, etc. And I think I've come up with a fairly good rendition of what this says. But Hebrews 11, I mean Psalm 11, 1 through 3, reads like this. I trust in the Lord. How will you say to my soul? Now he speaks, this one who proclaims that he trusts in the Lord, David writing, says to someone else, how can you say to me, Flee to the mountains like a sparrow. Because look, people controlled by sin have bent the bow. They've prepared arrows for the quiver to shoot in a moonless night at the upright in heart. Maybe you've thought of this before. You look around at your country and you see a lot of things falling apart. Then you think, It'd be great to get out of this country. But then you think, where would you go? The things that are happening in our country are happening all over the place. There's a crumbling. There is a great proverb from which the book Something of Value was written. And it was based on a Kikuyu proverb of a Kenyan tribe in Africa. And they had a saying that was basically went like this, if I may paraphrase. If you're going to destroy the present order of things, you better replace it with something of value. Well, God is going to do that. He's going to replace the present thing, the present order of this world with something of infinitely greater value, which is a new creation. But until then, there are certain foundations in place that make for peace and for an orderly civilization. Those are crumbling today. So what are the righteous supposed to do? What are are we who believe in Jesus Christ 
and who love all of mankind and who understand, and I say this with heartfelt piety and not as some social media person, who know for God's sake that the blood that runs through the veins of every human being is one blood. And as our friend Emery, the embassy Marine, recently said to me, not only do we have one blood running through our veins, we have one blood of one Jesus Christ upon us all. He's a propitiation for all of our sins, the sins of the whole world. For those of us who know this, and because of knowing this, we know that when Christ died, when one died for all, for all, for all, then all died with him. And so all of the human race, despite its various tints of color, is in him. Those of us who know this, what do we do now? What are we going to do? We love all humankind as the Holy Spirit pours that love out in us. Otherwise, all of us, without exception, are slaves to one or more forms of prejudice or bias. Because we're sinners. We're sinful people. But those of us in whom the love of God is being poured out in our hearts for all humanity in 1 Thessalonians 3.12 and Romans 5.5, what are we supposed to do now in this world at this time in history? Fly like a sparrow to a mountain? Go cut off? Or cut up a part of a city and settle in a few blocks of it? Or go to some state and secede from the union? What are we supposed to do? Go find some place where there is harmony between all the races? There is no place in this age, in this world in which we die. What are we supposed to do then? The wicked have planned to destroy you, says this guy. You may trust in the Lord, but the wicked are planning to destroy you. They're destroying what you created, they say. Psalm 11.3. You built a business, poured your whole guts into it, whether you're black or white or brown or yellow or white. And somebody pulled it down.
What are you going to do? What are we supposed to do? Well, the one who trusts in the Lord and who has made the Lord his refuge is another translation. He says this, the Lord is in his holy shrine. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 11.4, LXX 10.4a. This begins to answer the question, what should we do? When foundations that once made for peace are destroyed, when foundations that once meant for or made for order are destroyed. If we've trusted in the Lord, all I can say as a pastor teacher is that we envision the enthroned Lord. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We see him who is seated at the right hand of God and who is waiting for all his enemies to be placed under his feet. In this world, in this world, even though it seems to be crumbling all around us, we see Jesus. We look unto Jesus and we run the course that's set before us with Jesus' own patience. You know why? Because when God's people, even if a few of them, if a remnant of them who understand this grace and who understand this love for all of the human race and who understand the finished work of Jesus Christ and who understand that God is enthroned in his heaven, that group of people can actually be part of a remnant of believers that brings an uptrend of history out of a downtrend of history and becomes part of a redemption of history into a better place than it was before. And that's a possibility for us, even in this world. Because history has its downturns, its upturns. And God's plan ultimately is to redeem history, redeem the time because the days are evil. Don't freak out because the days are evil. Make the most of the time. In this world, we see Jesus. We look unto Jesus. And we run the course that's set before us with Jesus' own patience. Which the Holy Spirit infuses into us through the word of God. You know why? The perseverance... That God requires of us. Is the perseverance that is in Jesus. Not our own capacity to endure. Men should always pray and not faint. Men and women should always pray and not faint. Jesus said. He requires perseverance in prayer. Persevere in prayer says Paul. You say I tried that. I can't, I can't hold it up. I can't do it all the time. That's because you pray in the Holy Spirit and pray as the Holy Spirit moves you to pray. When he moves you to pray, you pray. And you do that consistently in your life. It may be every once in a while, but it's always the heart is always inclined toward that. It may be with others or it may be in your own heart and mind. We pray in spirit and truth even as we worship in spirit and in truth. 
In Revelation 1.9, John wrote, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance that is in Jesus. The perseverance that is in Jesus is the perseverance that is in you who are in Jesus. It's his perseverance, just like it's his faithfulness. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God. You know what? If somebody has talked you into guilt, you frustrated the grace of God if you kowtow to guilt. You frustrated the grace of God. Isn't your conscience purified by the blood of Jesus Christ? We whose conscience is purified by the blood of Jesus Christ and who understand that only one blood runs through all the veins of all the human race and who can't help it because the Holy Spirit pours the love of God out into our hearts for all people, we're not going to be guilty and fearful. Perfect love drives out all fear and the blood of Christ purges out all guilt. try to heap guilt on me, we've got a problem because I do not give under the pressure of emotional blackmail. I don't buy it. You can serve your heaping dish of guilt to somebody else. I have a word for this. It's a small phrase. It's a small Well, it's a little, let's call it a slogan. It's a four-letter word, and the first letter is F of that first word. And the second word in my little slogan is guilt. Now, according, you know what I'd like to, uh, I would like to pray according to, with Paul. I want to pray with Paul. The best prayers I pray are the, either the prayer that Jesus said, pray this way, or that Paul said that he prays, like Ephesians 1, 17 through 23, or Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Or how about this one, 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. And this is what I'm actually praying right now to the Lord. I pray along with Paul, quote, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the perseverance of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the perseverance of Christ. Because you aren't going to love without the love of God and I'm not going to love without the love of God and I'm not going to persevere without the perseverance of Christ. So I pray that the Lord will direct your hearts, your innermost being and your thinking and your intentionality and your mentality and your understanding and your decision-making into the love of God. 
That's the love of God that comes from God for you and the love of God that comes out of you for God and the love of God that comes into you and through you for all of the human race. And for all ethnicities and all genders and all political party affiliations don't mean anything. That love doesn't see any of those things as a barrier. And I urge that we look unto Jesus, the author and the completer of faith, and that we run this race with his perseverance. He ran it to the end and endured the cross and is set down at the right hand of God. The Lord is in his shrine enthroned in the heavens. After all, Jesus ran this race and he's now exalted and enthroned at the right side of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews 1, 3. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Psalm 110, 1, 109, 1 LXX. The Lord is in his holy shrine. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 11, 4, B. Make that A. If Hebrews 11, now we'll go to Hebrews 11, a catalog of faith illuminaries, faith luminaries, real celebrities. To me, a celebrity isn't someone who can hit a ball really far or run with one or slam dunk one. To me, a celebrity isn't someone who gets famous by pretending to be somebody else and gets surgery to look pretty even into their 50s. To me, a celebrity is a person who lives by faith and who kind of fits within that catalog of people that God considers to be celebrities in Hebrews chapter 11. If Hebrews 11 has an addendum attached to it, and I think there will be someday, I think God's still writing that thing out. The Hebrews writers had to say, well, time would fail me to keep on going with this. So if time may have failed the PT, but I don't think it failed the Holy Spirit, I think he's still writing Hebrews 11 catalog of celebrities, a who's who of people of faith. People who are going to be celebrities in future world and already are. As Paul said, we're unknown and yet we're well known. What? We're unknown in this world. It's no big deal to have fame in this world. You want to be America's next idol. Big deal. Scubula. Being unknown in this world and well-known in future world, now that's something to look forward to. If Hebrews 11 has an addendum attached to it in the future, it would, it, this is what I hope it reads, and I'm thinking specifically of Tetelestai Phalanx, but I'm also thinking of millions of people in our country and across this world who can say with David, I trust in the Lord. I want this, I'd love to see this. I want to read this someday or a paraphrase of it. Quote, 
by faith, a remnant of Christians in the year 2020 looked unto Jesus, seeing him who is crowned with glory and honor, having tasted death for everyone. They did not panic in a pandemic or become anxious in a time of great shaking. They looked unto him and became radiant with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines from the face of Jesus Christ, their glorified Lord. Maybe even your name will be in there as one of them. So what should we do? When the foundations are crumbling, when civilization itself is being crushed under the hands of oppression. And revolution and insurrection. When the foundations themselves are crumbling, what do the righteous do? Well, we look away from the things on this earth and we see Jesus to be occupied with Jesus, to be in love with Jesus, to love with Jesus' love. We should trust in the Lord and find our refuge in him. We have fled for refuge, not like a sparrow to an earthly mountain, but to the Lord on the heavenly Mount Zion. We have strong incentive, says the scripture, to seize the hope that is set before us. Hebrews 6.18, 12.22 speaks of that mountain, Mount Zion, the heavenly. That hope is ultimately that of a universal restoration. We don't see that now. We don't even really see any possibility of that by sight now. How could that ever come to be? But our hope, our expectation is of a universal restoration that has Jesus Christ and him crucified and now raised and exalted and crowned with glory at its center and no other as its eternal foundation. There is no other name under heaven whereby humankind can be saved and there is no other name that deserves the worship. No man deserves worship, but the man, Christ Jesus. And to him, I'll bow my knees all day long. For he's the only mediator, the only mediator, the sole mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, and nobody else, no other name, no other person than Jesus of Nazareth. laid down his life as a ransom for all. There's a twofold offense in my gospel, the gospel that I preach today. You, it's a two, you, you can't win. You're going to offend somebody either by saying there's only one way to be saved, one person through whom to be saved, and so you get shot at by them. They bend their arrows toward you then, 
because of the exclusivity of that salvation, then you say that everyone will be saved by that one Savior, and you get shot by a bunch of other people who bend their bows against you because they're self-righteous prigs. That's P-R-I-G-S. Prigs. And to hang around with them is like Isaiah 55. You're, it's like you're picking up a pricker or a thorn. Religious types, self-righteous types. Oh, there's more self-righteous types within ideologies today that deny God than there even is among Christians who are famous for being self-righteous. So you, should, you ideologues should be very proud of yourselves because now you're the new pioneers of damnable self-righteous arrogance. Yay! You can tell I'm leaving the pulpit now shortly. The hope is ultimately of a universal restoration. We have this hope as a secure anchor of the soul that enters into the inner shrine behind or beyond the curtain of flesh that was torn at Calvary. Hebrews six seventeen through 20, coupled with Hebrews 10, 20. Beyond the torn curtain is already Jesus, our forerunner, who has become an archpriest through this whole age, just like Melchizedek was, as a type. Jesus has entered this glorious place for us, having removed the barrier that separated all of humanity from God. In doing so, he removed the obstacle that prevented his own completion in solidarity with all of humanity. He blasted the barrier into powder that prevented all of humanity from solidarity with God in his son. Now, in a 48-page footnote in Church Dogmatics, Thank you, Lynn Andrews, for recommending this. And I still haven't read the whole thing yet, but wow, what a fantastic recommendation. Lynn is one of the few people I know who actually read all of Church Dogmatics by Karl Barth. I plan to do that in my 70s if the Lord gives me time. If, it, if I go through the 70s, I want, meaning my age, 70 to 80, I hope I read Karl Barth, Church Dogmatics, during that time. But, Lynn, I'm reading that 48-page footnote with really tiny print, and this is a segment I found from it that I think fits right in to increment 30 of the Corona series, increment 41 of the Hebrews 2020 series, and Karl Barth wrote this on page 493 of the famous volume of 2 slash 2, Roman numeral 2 slash Number two, 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 church dogmatics, two, two, page 493, a little section of this. 
And there was about 20 I was looking at that I wish I could have quoted, but here's the one. Karl Barth wrote, Karl Barth wrote this. Before it can be positively made good, that which stands between God and us must first be removed and removed according to justice and righteousness. The handing over of Jesus shows how great and serious is that which must be removed. It shows that it can be removed only when God takes upon himself its necessary condemnation and punishment so that they can no longer fall on us. I'll stop right there before I finish. No condemnation falls on us. And so guilt is driven out. No punishment falls on us. So fear is driven out. For fear has torment because of the fear of punishment. Now, let's continue. It shows that it can be removed only when God takes upon himself its necessary condemnation and punishment so that they can no longer fall on us, so that we no longer have to bear them, so that we may be free for that which God wills to give us. That is what God resolved to do in the person of Jesus Christ. And I agree wholeheartedly. And I say this. In addition. That is what God has done in Jesus Christ. To see Jesus is to see such a great salvation. A salvation wrought for all. Done for all. Accomplished for everybody. A salvation to which Jesus himself testified when he spoke the word to Telestai, which he actually said in Aramaic in a different word. But to Telestai, the Greek translation of what he cried or what he spoke in the final analysis speaks of the completion of the son. He's saying, I am completed. In my solidarity with mankind. Mankind is completed in solidarity with me. And a new creation is created and completed. That's what tetelestai means. To see Jesus. Is to see and to understand this great salvation and to have incentive to wait with tiptoe anticipation for the epiphany of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will come and bring this salvation in the form of a universal restoration. Let that hope be an anchor for your soul. I'm done with increment 41. I'll be out of pocket for a while. And I hope that you will uh, pray for Pam and her upcoming surgery and others who are having it. I'm thinking specifically of Claudia and Linda and all the members of our phalanx here who either are 
suffering one form or another or have friends who are or family members who are. We present you all to the throne of grace for timely help. And I hope that you'll stay tuned. And uh, the messages will be for June 28th and July 1st from Pastor Brian Messick. And then again, July 5th and July 8th for Pastor Craig Brown. Those messages will be available. You'll see them on a slider on the website, tetelestai.org. And they're... It's there will be for your edification. Believe me, it will be worth listening to their messages and they'll be recorded probably before those dates and up before or by those dates. So stay tuned. Amen.